Hello, it's Nim, and this is a spoonful of medicine, topping up your pediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On today's show, we're taking a look at celiac disease. That's a disease where gluten is not your friend. We'll check out the way it presents, what exactly causes celiac disease, how it's diagnosed, and also how it's managed. We'll also take a brief look into the genetic links of celiac disease because as we know now with genetics a lot of these associations are becoming a forefront in terms of the approach and management of celiac. So let's take a look at celiac disease. Celiac disease is an incredibly common condition affecting about 1% of the population. In Caucasian countries such as Australia, the UK and Europe, 1 in 80 to 3 in 100 children are affected by celiac disease. The highest incidence of celiac disease, in fact, is in sub-Saharan Africa. And the incidence of celiac disease itself is increasing. And this is likely because of more testing, but also may be linked to genetic pools. Females are affected more than males, and often we feel that it's underdiagnosed as many celiacs may be symptom-free and therefore not really tested. Interestingly, celiac disease is one of the most common genetically predetermined disorders. So, what's the go? What causes celiac disease? Before we get into that, we first need to take a look at gluten. What is gluten? Well, it is a mixture of gliadins and glutenins that are found in wheat or similar proteins in barley, rye and oats. Glutens fall under a group of proteins called prolamins. Up to 100 gluten proteins are found in wheat. Gluten itself contains 30% glutamine and 15% proline. And it is the proline that renders gluten resistant to digestion in the gut. The importance of this is that it's possible for large molecular weight peptides to reach the mucosal surface. Now, there are a few types of gluten. The most commonly known one is the one in wheat, which is gliadin and glutenin. You can also find gluten in barley in the form of hordin, or rye in the form of secolin, or even in oats in the form of avenin. So, how does good old gluten cause celiac disease? Well, gluten itself is partially digested by human proteases in the gut. This partially digested gluten is then taken up into cells. It is subsequently deaminated to gliadin by TTG or tissue transglutaminase. Here, the antigenic gliadin is then taken up by antigen-presenting cells. And then these antigens are presented on these antigen-presenting cells via particular HLA, or human leukocyte antigens. These human leukocyte antigens stimulate CD4 T-cells and cause a cellular response. There is a release of IL-21, interferon gamma, and many other cytokines. The CD4 T-cells then react and start a pro-inflammatory cascade where gluten-specific cell responses occur. There is interepithelial lymphocytes that start to accumulate and inflammation that pursues and ultimately tissue damage. CD4 T-cells also stimulate B-cells and this causes the production of the characteristic celiac disease antibodies. 
Ultimately, a whole bunch of inflammation causes widespread mucosal damage. And this mucosal damage means a brush border is impaired. Impaired brush border means impaired absorption of multiple nutrients, such as proteins and carbohydrates. All of this leads to the characteristic signs and symptoms of celiac disease, including abdominal pain, chronic diarrhea, being of an osmotic diarrhea due to malabsorption of carbohydrates. We can't absorb our proteins and carbohydrates across our brush border, which means we become malnourished and we start to lose weight. And so we can see how the ingestion of gluten can really start the snowball effect that can cause mucosal damage and malnutrition. In terms of the genetics of celiac disease, this is really interesting because it's one of those conditions that has clear links to HLA or human leukocyte antigen types. And the two main ones to know about the celiac disease are HLA DQ2 and HLA DQ8. There's an increased risk of celiac disease in those with HLA DQ2 and in HLA DQ8. If you have two copies of the HLA DQ2 gene, you are at the highest overall risk of celiac disease, and that correlates to a 31 times higher chance of developing celiac disease than the average population. You also are at an increased risk of refractory celiac disease, as well as an increased risk of EATL, or intolerability-associated T-cell lymphoma. If you have one HLA-DQ2 and one HLA-DQ8, you have a 14-time risk of getting celiac disease compared to the general population. If you have one HLA-DQ gene alone, you're still at increased risk of celiac disease, and that sits at 10 times the risk of the population. Ultimately, above 95% of those with celiac disease will have at least one of these genes being positive. However, HLA testing is not a good screening measure because 30% of the population will have either HLA DQ2 or HLA DQ8, but only 1% of the population have celiac disease. So what that means is HLA testing has good sensitivity, it can rule out celiac disease, but it has poor specificity, so it cannot rule in celiac disease. When we take a look at the manifestations of celiac disease, we can split them up into gastrointestinal, extraintestinal manifestations, and then risks of malignancy. First, if we take a look at the gastrointestinal manifestations, these include chronic or intermittent diarrhea, constipation, and abdominal pain. Celiac disease patients can have a distended abdomen due to the fermentation of the many carbohydrates in the colon. They can also have recurrent nausea and vomiting, and can also be complicated by hepatitis and in rare cases, cholangitis. Extraintestinal manifestations of celiac disease include malnutrition leading to a short stature or a failure to thrive. These children can have delayed puberty and amenorrhea. They can also have dermatitis herpetiformis, which is a characteristic rash associated with celiac disease. 
Those with celiac disease can also have dental enamel defects, a chronic iron deficiency anemia because we can't absorb iron when you don't have a brushed border that is intact. There's also decreased bone mineralization and that can lead to osteopenia and osteoporosis due to poor absorption of calcium. Other issues can include neuropathy related to severe vitamin B12 deficiency. There can be arthritis and arthralgias, recurrent aphthous ulcers, and abnormal liver biochemistry. In terms of risks of malignancies, those with celiac disease are at a higher risk of developing enteropathy-associated T-cell lymphoma, or EATL. They also have a higher risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, as well as adenocarcinoma of the small intestine. There are also a number of conditions that are associated with an increased risk of celiac disease. And these include having a first degree relative with celiac disease. Um, If you do, there's a five to 10 times the risk of developing it than the general population. Those with autoimmune conditions such as type 1 diabetes, thyroid disease and liver disease also have an increased risk of celiac disease. Children or people with Down syndrome or T21 have five times the population risk of developing celiac disease. Similarly, those with Turner syndrome and Williams-Buren syndrome have about a 10 times the risk of developing celiac disease. And finally, IgA deficiency can constitute an 8% risk of developing celiac disease, which correlates to about 11 times the population-based average. Now, there is a lot of clinical variability in the way someone with celiac disease may present. The classical presentation is that of GI symptoms, malabsorption and failure to thrive with a flat mucosa with a lot of intraepithelial lymphocytes on histology. However, the non-classical presentation, oddly enough, is the most common way it presents. This may have mild GI symptoms or no GI symptoms. People can present with iron deficiency or osteoporosis. Kids may have short stature or pubertal delay. They can have dental enamel defects or dermatitis. And sometimes you may just find a transaminase elevation in the context of some abnormal LFTs. There's also increasing recognized types of celiac disease or clinical variability of celiac disease termed as silent celiac where these people have positive serology but are negative on histology and they tend to be found incidentally and are thought to be people that are yet to develop celiac disease or at risk of developing celiac disease. So who do we test for celiac disease? To be honest, the selection criteria for who to test is quite broad and the threshold is not necessarily that high. And the reason for that is the manifestations of celiac can be mild to severe and they don't necessarily have to be central to the GI symptoms. So you can test those with chronic or intermittent diarrhea, failure to thrive, persistent or unexplained GI symptoms, prolonged fatigue, recurrent abdominal pain, sudden unexpected weight loss, unexplained iron deficiency, 
autoimmune thyroid diseases, those with type 1 diabetes and T21 are followed up for the development of celiac disease. If you see someone with dermatitis herpetiformis, then you'd want to test for celiac disease. And also, if someone has a family member who's a first-degree relative that has celiac disease. In terms of the testing for celiac disease, I've taken the following from the most recent update of the NASPAGAN guidelines, and they were released in 2020. Before testing for celiac disease, whether that be serology or biopsies, patients must be taking 10 to 20 grams of gluten a day for at least two weeks. This practically equates to one to two slices of bread a day. The reason for this is because if you don't have gluten, you're not getting that immune response. And if you're not getting that immune response, you're not going to get antibody production. And so we will not see antibodies that are positive and we can get false negative results. And similarly, we won't see histological changes on biopsy if there is no immune response happening. There are a few antibodies to choose from when testing for celiac disease. There is total IgA serum TTG antibodies that are IgA antibodies as well. There's serum anti-endomesial antibodies, again IgA, and there's also IgG anti-gliadin antibodies. However, these last ones are no longer recommended as they are inferior to the other tests. The current recommendations for initial testing are to test total IgA levels, and tissue transglutaminase antibodies, or TGA IgA levels. These two tests in cohort have been shown to be the most accurate and cost-effective. Here, in the presence of normal total IgA levels, a TTG that is positive is suggestive of celiac disease. However, if you have an IgA level that is low, then you can't really depend on TTG IgA levels, and so you need to do an IgG-based test, and that usually is the serum IgG for DGP, EMA, or again, TTG. In the latest update of the guidelines, to make a diagnosis of celiac disease, there's two approaches that can be used. One is the no biopsy approach, the other is a biopsy approach. In the no biopsy approach, if the TTG IgA level is above 10 times the upper limit of normal with accurate and proper testing, then you do a second blood test to test the endomesial antibody levels. And if that is positive, then you have a diagnosis of celiac disease and you don't necessarily need to get a biopsy. However, some gastroenterologists still prefer to do a biopsy because serological positivity doesn't always correlate to histological proof or presence of celiac disease. So who needs a biopsy? Children with a positive TTG IgA but lower titers, or in other words, the TTG level is less than 10 times the upper limit of normal, should get a biopsy because we don't want to have a false positive. Similarly, people who are IgA deficient and have a positive IgG test also need a biopsy. 
Essentially, you're doing a biopsy because we don't want to have a false positive and then commit someone to a low-gluten diet for essentially the rest of their life. The current recommendations around HLA testing are that HLA testing is not required in patients with a positive anti-TTG antibodies if they qualify for celiac disease diagnosis without biopsies or if they have high serum TTG and and high EMA that is also positive. A positive HLA result, like we said earlier, does not confirm the diagnosis, i.e. someone with a positive HLA DQ2 or DQ8 doesn't really mean much. But a negative HLA test indicates a very low risk of celiac disease and it's somewhat helpful. Ultimately, HLA testing is not recommended as a screening test. We keep on mentioning biopsies for celiac disease. Well, what do we see on these biopsies and what do we mean? The biopsies for celiac disease are graded with the MARSH criteria and the parameters that this criteria looks at includes the number of intraepithelial lymphocytes that are seen within the enterocytes, the amount of crypt hyperplasia, and the degree of villous atrophy. Multiple biopsies need to be taken from levels in the duodenum in D1 and D2, and in a textbook sense, celiac disease typically affects the duodenum proximally to distally. A MASH criteria or score of two or more is suggestive of celiac disease. And now we're going to wrap up with looking at the management. Essentially, the way that you manage celiac disease is eliminating gluten from the diet. Dietary lactose restrictions are not usually necessarily because the problem is with the reaction to gluten, not with a deficiency of lactase. We also need to monitor serology regularly, and this is usually done six monthly after diagnosis and treatment, and then yearly if the patient is symptom-free. In studies that show adherence to the celiac or gluten-free diet, about 40-80% to do adhere. If there's any significantly worsening symptoms, a biopsy is recommended. And it kind of goes without saying that if you're suspecting a diagnosis of celiac disease, a referral to a paediatric gastroenterologist is certainly warranted. In terms of those with a potential celiac disease or those who are serologically positive but histologically negative, yearly serology may be done and then if the serology is worsening or the patient becomes symptomatic biopsies can be done then to establish whether they have now developed celiac disease okay it's time for a recap celiac disease is a chronic small intestine immune mediated enteropathy precipitated by exposure to dietary gluten in genetically predisposed individuals. The genetic link is to HLA, DQ2 and DQ8, which have poor specificity but can aid in the sensitivity 
to exclude or lessen the chance of a diagnosis of celiac disease. Manifestations of celiac disease can be categorized into gastrointestinal and extra-intestinal manifestations. Gastrointestinal manifestations include intermittent chronic abdominal pain and diarrhea, distended abdomen, as well as nausea and vomiting. Extraintestinal manifestations can include short stature, failure to thrive, dermatitis, dental anomalies, chronic iron deficiency anemia, and poor bone mineralization. Those with celiac disease are also at a higher risk of conditions such as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, enteropathy-associated T-cell lymphoma, and adenocarcinoma of the small intestine. Conditions that are associated with a higher risk of celiac disease include those with autoimmune conditions, including type 1 diabetes, thyroid disease and liver disease, those with Down syndrome, Turner syndrome, Williams-Buren syndrome and IgA deficiency. The diagnosis of celiac disease is made using serology plus or minus biopsy and the main antibodies that we test for are the total IgA as well as the serum transglutaminase antibodies. Biopsies are graded along the MARSH criteria and histological proof of celiac disease is said to be present in stage MARSH 2 or more. The management of celiac disease is lifelong elimination of gluten from the diet. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.